Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be here at Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial. And uh, especially good to be here on this, this wonderful Lord's Day morning. I, uh, I read. It's what I do. I, I, I read all the time. I read things normal people don't read. I read unnecessary things. I read things and it causes me to think one little word can make a difference. In your order of worship this morning, it has a double asterisk which came into relevance during the time we were singing that last wonderful hymn, Christ the Solid Rock. And I read the asterisk, double asterisk for double effect. It says, children ages three through five can meet in the lobby for children's ministry. Parents can pick up their children upstairs after the service, snacks provided. I don't think that's a can. I just want to say that can works the first time, it does not work the second time. I, I, I think what is meant there is that parents must pick up their children upstairs after the service. If there are any extraneous children without parents, blame the English language. It's just it's merely can. I want to tell you how joy fills my heart as I am here with you and, uh, and Mary with me. Uh, my experience in Louisville goes back when I came as a seminary student in 1980. So the better part of my life has been lived right here in this city. And so for 40 years, uh, nearly, this, uh, this has been our home. When I came here as a seminary student, I became minister to college students and then minister to youth at Walnut Street Baptist Church and have known this part of Louisville and have known the churches that largely came out of the ministry of Walnut Street over a process of decades. I don't know how many times I have preached in this building, but several, uh, going back uh, many, many years. And you'll understand why it gives me particular joy to see what I see this morning. A gospel congregation gathered together in this place, showing all the signs of life in the gospel. Uh, you may have noticed you have children in your midst, and uh, all the attendant noises of children. And uh, I've lived long enough to understand that where you find such noises, you find signs of life. And I look around this congregation and I realize I have stood in this place many times in the past. and. It was a lack of faith to think that something like this might not, could not happen, and it's to the glory of God. So I just want you to know how happy I am to be here, how happy I am to know that you and your pastor and your elders are ministering in this place, in this neighborhood, at this time, to the glory of God, uh, a church that dearly loves and preaches the gospel right here. So just know how happy uh, I am and uh, how I am thankful that there are so many gospel churches in this city by multiplication than was the case a generation ago. And uh, I, I hope that in a whole new way, the Lord will bless your ministry right here to this neighborhood as well as beyond. You're already an encouragement far beyond, but right here in this neighborhood as well. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter. And I'm going to be turning this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
The text for the morning will be verses 13 to 25, and I ask you to read as I read aloud. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's needs, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your hope and faith are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of God. Well... We live in a time of, of rare harvest, and I guess each of us is trapped in a certain biography or autobiography that forms a frame of reference. So when I think of this church and who you are and what you believe, and I think about this moment, I think about what it means for me to be at Southern Seminary in this age, I, I think about together for the gospel coming in just a matter of weeks. I have had the opportunity in the last few weeks of my life uh, to be on both coasts, to be amongst Christ's people in several churches, speaking at several conferences, including the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles and the Ligonier Conference in Orlando. I say that not as a travelogue. I, I just want to state that this is relatively new. It's relatively new. I was born in 1959, made a profession of faith as a young boy, raised by parents who truly raised me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I heard the gospel. I was surrounded by the gospel. I was surrounded by gospel people, Christ people who loved me. I, by God's providence, was raised by Christian parents in a Christian home in a wonderful Christian church where the gospel was preached and the Bible was taught. And, uh, and yet, the evangelicalism of the day was a very theologically superficial evangelicalism. The evangelicalism that gets shaped the, the, the common theological understanding of what it meant to be a Christian was minimal. To use the language of philosophy, it was, it was thin, not thick. And it, it didn't run into the questions, it didn't take too many questions seriously. It was in a time of cultural dominance, of 
evangelical Protestant Christianity in the United States, uh, evangelicals didn't have to have much gospel-centeredness to be big. Uh, evangelicals didn't have to have much of a gospel in order to have crowds. Evangelicals didn't have to develop a biblical theology because there was a dominant nominal Christianity that, that just basically formed the worldview of the age. And in that sense, evangelical Christians were just slightly more Christian than the society around us. Uh, when I reached teenage years, uh, I experienced what I can only describe as an apologetic crisis. And it was a crisis marked by questions that came pressed upon me by an increasingly secular society and uh, by being thrust into a very different sociological context than I'd known as a boy. As a teenager, my father had been transferred, our family had moved, I found myself in an entirely different culture. Rather than being surrounded by other, say, evangelical Christians and those who at least thought they ought to be evangelical Christians and demonstrated a certain cultural or nominal Christianity, I was placed in a context that was radically secularizing and uh, in the company of atheists and agnostics. I needed help in a hurry. Now, the reason I give that as a bit of autobiography is to say a word of encouragement to you a word of encouragement about what it means to live as gospel people in a generation in which we now have riches and resources that did not exist for us a generation ago. And, and so when I, I speak of someone like R.C. Sproul, now with the Lord, just still, just a few weeks ago, uh, you have to understand that when his book, The Holiness of God, came out, even though now uh, younger evangelicals, younger gospel-centered Christians can take that kind of theology for granted, what made that book so seminal and explosive at the time is that that kind of theology wasn't found much of anywhere. And, and the holiness of God had been eclipsed by God as a cultural construct of a very benign nature, uh, a, a God of whom most Christians would say all the right things without any biblical theology to tie those right words together into anything that was comprehensively biblical. Now, there are ways this can be put quite graphically. I think the phrase, the domestication of transcendence, has it just about perfect. It was domesticating deity. And you know what it means to domesticate a dog? Sometimes a failed project, but nonetheless, you know the goal. In domesticating a dog, we refer to certain animals the human beings can be around safely as domesticated animals. A domesticated deity or domesticated transcendence is God cut down to size for a society that will tolerate only so much God. And it is in response to that God cut down to size that R.C. in his book, The Holiness of God, responded by saying only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, 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 not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, 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 it does say that he is holy, holy, holy. 
that the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, raised as a Southern Baptist, singing out of the Southern Baptist hymnal, simply called the Baptist hymnal, hymn number one was always holy, holy, holy. You could change the ordering of other hymns inside the hymnal, but successive editions of the Baptist hymnal always had as hymn number one, holy, holy, holy. Why? Because that is the most biblical of affirmations. It is the, the trisagion, the, the, the thrice-declared holiness of God. Even as the seraphim declared that one to the other, those who know the one true and living God through Jesus Christ affirm what it means to say that God is holy, holy, holy. And of course, many of you are trained in Hebrew to know that there are no comparatives and superlatives in the Hebraic language. There's no good, better, best, big, bigger, and biggest. And so a word has to be repeated for effect. And holy, holy, holy makes very clear that God is infinitely holy. Peter in this text is writing to those he identifies as being elect exiles of the dispersion. One of the problems of evangelical Christianity is that we have often read the scripture as if much of it is addressed to someone else. And I, I think that probably happens to all of us, but in, in one particular aspect, when we read about being elect exiles, I think the first thing we think of is that that must have been true of those who were Christians in the first century in places such as Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, it might even be true of certain Christians in certain places now. We could, we could understand Christians who are in places where there is no cultural status whatsoever, perhaps no religious liberty or even the, the freedom of assembly. We can understand that there are Christians operating in, in a situation of cultural displacement. But throughout most of evangelical history in the United States of America, we, we thought that must be about someone else. And it will be interesting, in effect, to read their mail. This is Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to those who are elect exiles. But we did not feel ourselves to be exiles. We certainly didn't perceive ourselves to be exiles. You don't build a campus at 2825 Lexington Road saying, this is what it looks like to be an exile. You look at the edifices of American Christianity. They do not look like an exilic existence. You look at the vast evangelical empire as it existed at the end of the 20th century. That doesn't look like... That doesn't look like exiles. By the way, just a very interesting little twist in evangelical architecture. At some point in the 20th century, uh, conservative evangelicals began to build buildings with more classical themes. Now, of course, some of this is back in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, it was a particular, it was a particular shift. And without recognizing it, the architecture was actually making a theological statement. Because with so much premillennialism that had been very much the part of the Bible conference movement, the churches that came out of that, they were basically built as merely tabernacles to be abandoned because Jesus is coming quickly. And so there's no concern for aesthetics. Just, you just put up a building and put a bunch of people in it. It's only for preaching, so there's no need for any kind of, uh, of decoration, any kind of classical motif. Instead, we'll just uh, we'll simply put in seats and a, a preaching lectern. We'll call it a pulpit, and that's it. But you'll notice how many of those churches that were built later were built as if to say, we belong here, and we're staying here, and we expect this building to be here a very long time. 
So even the architecture reflected a change in the theology. The point is this. Peter is not writing to Christians who in some places at some times would be rightly described as elect exiles. He's writing to the church. And, and evidently, rightly understood, the church, wherever, whenever it is found, under whatever cultural conditions it may operate, whether it is loved by the culture, usually that means a confused culture or a confused church, or if it is hated by the culture, in any respect, it is always true that we are elect exiles. Some of you know the theological literature well enough to know that uh, about uh, 20 years ago, William Williman and Stan Hauerwas wrote a book entitled Resident Aliens. They picked up the language directly from this text, the opening to 1 Peter, elect exiles, resident aliens, because that was a term then new in international conversation. They said that's, that's what it means. We are exiles. We're, we're living here, but we're, we don't really belong here. Paul described that when he said that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Now, Paul did not forfeit his earthly citizenship. The book of Acts makes very clear that, that when he was being tried, he, he claimed his rights as a Roman citizen. He even recited his resume as a, a Roman citizen. But Paul had no ultimate confidence in being a citizen of Rome. His ultimate confidence was only as being an, a, a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Now, what Peter is writing here is, is, is very parallel to Paul. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to so those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the dispersion of the church. And, and, and how do we become elect exiles? How, how does that happen? The word elect is a pretty good clue. Uh, we did not elect ourselves. We were elect. This is according to the eternal foreknowledge of God because Peter tells us so. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The prepositions are so important here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in, in the sanctification of the Spirit. What for? For the obedience to Jesus Christ and Furthermore, for sprinkling with his blood. It seems that that must be a reference both to atonement and potentially to martyrdom. This is bracing news, isn't it? Being identified as elect exiles, being told that we are elect according to the eternal foreknowledge of God, and that we are elect to to God, we are, we are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And then look at the next phrase, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It really is good news to be told who we are. It really is good news to be reminded of the identity of the church. It, it, it's really good news. It's not good news to be exiles. That's never good news. We don't hear that word with the terror it would have meant throughout most of, most of human history and the terror that it means to many right now. As you're thinking about people displaced around the world right now, those who are migrants and, and immigrants, those who are without protective citizenship, that is one of the most vulnerable situations in which a human being can be found. It, it's not good news to be in exile, but it is infinitely, eternally good news to be elect exiles. That makes all the difference.
But then we go to verse 13. Paul has recited the facts of the gospel. He's told us about what God has done for us in Christ. And then there comes the therefore. And I always, when I say that word, think of Charles Spurgeon, who in the 19th century reminded his own students that as you read the scripture, when you find the word therefore, you need to ask the question, wherefore the therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's there to draw attention to the fact that this is a link in an argument on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ, on the basis of the truth that we are elect exiles as the church. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So all at once in that one verse, we are put into an historical frame, and, and this just reminds us of the of the flow of biblical history and of the reality of biblical theology. We are, we are here taken into an eschatological frame. We are, we are looking for that which will be brought to conclusion at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But until then, in this age, we are, therefore, to prepare our minds for action. We're to be sober-minded. Some of you will remember the old King James, gird up the loins of your mind. One of the strangest King James expressions found anywhere. It, it's, it's one of the weirdest word pictures that the authorized version of the scripture gives us. It, it means to get your brain ready to act. To gird up the loins, you know, was to pull up the robes, the, the flowing garments, in order to be able to run. Now, I, I realize this is just one of those things we take for granted because the King James still has such a hold in our imagination. But basically, we are told to pull up the skirts of your brain. And if that makes sense to you, it's only because you know the Scripture. But you'll notice something else here. I've talked about the parallels between Peter and Paul. And, and, and now you see another of these parallels because it's, it's in another therefore that Paul makes a very similar point. In Romans chapter 11, he ends with that massive doxology and with the words for from him and to him and through him are all things, to whom be glory forever, amen. Therefore, and you'll recall again, as I memorized it in the old navigator system from the King James, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so you'll notice that, that Peter here says you're supposed to, we're supposed to gird our minds for action. In other words, one of the really important affirmations, it isn't elaborated upon a great deal, it's simply taken as axiomatic as what it means to be a Christian. Whether it's Paul in, in Romans chapter 12, or it's Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, Intellectual engagement, mentally aware, ready for mental action is, is the mode of authentic Christianity. We're, we're not called to check our brains. We're not, we're, we're not called to, to, to lean into feeling or, or into emotion. Instead, we are told as Christians on the basis of all that God has revealed, and of course, that's where this text ends as we see that testimony to the Word of God. On the basis of everything that is made known to us, has been revealed to us, we are to be ready to think in order to be ready to be faithful. We are to be thinking, mentally engaged, Christians thinking according to the mind of Christ, 
in order that we would not be conformed to the world, but would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as this text makes clear, as those who have prepared minds for action and are sober-minded, we are they who hope fully and set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But then you'll notice the, the language also in parallel continues. As Paul says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Here Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now that's interesting too, isn't it? Because the before and the after is not just saved and unsaved. It's, it's not just uh, non-Christian and Christian. It's not just unbeliever and believer. It's uh, ignorant. And whatever is the opposite of ignorant. But it's your former ignorance. The, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, of course, putting this in the flow of biblical history, this would remind us of the gift of the law, uh, the gift of the law. A, a, a gift of the law, uh, in terms of how God would have his creatures to live, that was the sign of the covenant and the substance of that covenant and the, the, the covenant of the law. And we remind ourselves, as Paul reminded the church, that this is God's gift to us in the law. Otherwise, we would be ignorant Paul says in Romans chapter 7, if the law had not said, you shall not covet, I would not have known that I coveted. I would not have understood my own behavior. And of course, that points to the yet another purpose of the law, which is to convict us of our sins and make us yearn for Christ. But here the former is described as a former ignorance. We're not ignorant anymore. And, and as Christians, we're not ignorant anymore in a double sense. Certainly, we're not ignorant of the law, but more importantly, we're not ignorant of Christ, of his cross, and of his resurrection, and all that has been revealed. Peter continues in kind of a white-hot flow, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, going back to the impact of that book, The Holiness of God, when it appeared in the 1980s, there, there was nothing there that was new that the Christian church didn't know. Uh, e even most of us in, in my generation, when we read that book, there was nothing in it we didn't know. But what we had never seen before was someone who put this together in such, a, in, in such an argument in which R.C. took us into the deepest truths of the gospel. He he, he took us into the Reformation and to what he called the insanity of Luther. And, and from holy, 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 he demonstrated a biblical theology all the way down to the solas of the Reformation and what it meant to have a God-centered understanding of the world and what it meant as a believer to be called to holiness because God is holy. And in this text, that's exactly what Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he's talking about. But as he who called you is holy, calling, effectual calling, isn't it amazing how clear all of this is in the flow of the argument? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. One of the most amazing themes of the New Testament, made very clear, especially you might say in Peter's two letters, we know it's First and Second Peter, is the fact that one of the greatest forms of witness of the Christian church, the Christian church as elect exiles, is a way of life that perplexes 
the secular, the non-Christian world, perplexes the powers that be. Christians living according to the way of Christ become a contradiction to the world, a sign of contradiction to the world, a confusion to the world. It, 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 is, it is a testimony to the fact that we are gods, that our holiness points to the source of that holiness, our imperfect holiness, our progressive sanctification points to the holiness and to the saving power, the sovereign and almighty power of the God who in Christ redeems us. You'll notice the, the expression that Peter uses here. It's, it's, a, it's a command. We are to be holy because he who called us is holy. We are also to be holy in all of our conduct. And it is written since it is written. And again, as you know, in the scripture, one of the most important statements made is it is written. And and thus, it is conclusive. It's, a, it's an affirmation of divine revelation. It's an affirmation of verbal revelation. It is written. It's an affirmation of scriptural revelation. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to know where that comes from? You see it in almost any translation you have before you. You're going to see quotation marks. You're going to know it goes back to Leviticus. It goes back to Leviticus chapter 11. I'd ask you to turn with me. Look back to Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 41. I dare say that if you've never looked this up before, you're going to be surprised at the context in which this statement is found where God declares himself to be holy and says, therefore, his people shall be holy. The very verse that Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, repeats and cites when he says, it is written. Well, where is it written? Well, it's written in Leviticus chapter 11. And what is happening around the text? Where is it, it is written? Well, my guess is it's going to be surprising to you. I hope, hope every... Hope every middle school boy is listening carefully. Beginning in verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. And this is the good news that was preached to you. It's amazing. And I just want to tell you, this is one of those moments when you look at the Old Testament and you go, many parts of the law are difficult to obey, but I got this one down. We've got this one cold. We, we are completely obedient to this text, nor is there any significant temptation that we would otherwise be tempted. We do not eat detestable things that crawl upon the ground, swarming things, things close to the ground with many legs. As, as a young boy, I played with them. I grew up in Florida. I was surrounded by them. And uh, I always found bugs very interesting. I would pick them up and look at them. But, you know, I, 
can honestly say that with all the weirdness of a young boy around bugs, I never had the temptation to eat one. I never looked at one of these crawling, swarming, detestable, multi-legged things and thought, I want you for lunch. Now, now wh wh why would this be the context for this particular passage? Why would God repeat, just in the verses we read from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11, why would he repeat twice that he is holy, therefore is People are to be holy, therefore they are not to eat this. Of course, it comes in the context of the holiness code. It comes in the context of the dietary laws. And, and I think we often misconstrue and misunderstand them. Uh, and, and one of the ways we misunderstand them is when Christians, sometimes writing diet and nutrition books, try to write about how all of them point to some diet secret. Uh, that, that's not how we should see this. That's not to say there's not dietary wisdom that is embedded within them, but frankly... Uh, to put that into an old covenant, new covenant perspective, that would mean that in the new covenant, God's less concerned with our physical health, I, which I think means that that's not the major point of, uh, of the dietary laws in the Old Testament. I think the, the holiness code and the dietary laws in particular were meant to do two things simultaneously. First of all, within Israel, the daily meticulous keeping of these commandments, laws, and statutes required constant attentiveness to the law constant attentiveness to the law, and that constant attentiveness to the law was intended to be a larger lesson about constant attentiveness to God, the, the giver of the law. And the second thing was, again, just as the church as elect exiles is to be a perplexity to the world, Israel was to be a perplexity in the ancient Near East. Other people evidently ate these things. Again, one of the earliest recognitions of scripture I had when I was about 13 reading through the Bible for the first time. I can, I, I can remember reading a text and closing it and realizing that God didn't have to say, don't do this if people weren't doing this. An entire catalog of all the things people were doing, God says, you shall not do, speaking to his people, the covenant people, Israel. So as Israel was to be reminded of God and made more attentive to God, and Israel was to stand out from the other nations and be attentive to its responsibility to stand out, and also a perplexity to the world, to the other people's watching. It's in the midst of this that God emphatically makes the point that he is holy. And if he is holy, then his people must be holy too. Verse 44, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. Or as we see in verse 45, you shall be therefore holy, for I am holy. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter goes back to Leviticus and pulls this out and transfers it as an imperative to the church. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter goes on to say, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Interesting how Peter here throws in more of the gospel just in reminding us who God is. Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. Fear. One of the joys of being raised in a Christian home, and one of the great God-given blessings of being raised in a gospel church is that you're surrounded by Scripture. And this means that 
I always want to honor those who taught me the Bible. And as a child, as a what we used to call intermediates, as a, as a teenager, as a young person, those who poured the Bible into me. But sometimes they didn't quite pour enough Bible into me. What I mean by that is that domestication of transcendence also leads to an effort sometimes to domesticate the Scripture. And you've got to do both, right? Because if you're going to domesticate deity, you've got to domesticate the Word. And sometimes it's a reflection of not so much some kind of aberrant liberal theology as it is just evangelical sentimentality. So what am I talking about? Well, here Peter uses the motivation of a godly fear. And I can still remember Sunday school teachers routinely, I guess, afraid of scaring the children, saying, now, this doesn't really mean fear. You know, this, this means respect or whatever. But I can just tell you that the best understanding of the word fear is fear. Be afraid. Be very afraid. This is, this is not unexpected, is it? In the rightly ordered home, Parents obey their children. Parents love their children. Parents trust their children. In a rightly ordered home, parents, uh, the children will obey their father. And if they disobey, they should expect the father's discipline. And in that sense, fear the father. And there's no one rightly raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord who does not know at that time fear means fear. And in a, in a larger context here, the Christian church living as God's obedient children, if we are disobedient, should think in terms of the very same fear, for God is holy, thrice holy, and we are called to be holy, and we are told to conduct ourselves <clears throat> according to a godly fear. And, and, and what conditions that fear? In verse 18, knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways. It was, it was previously described as former ignorance. We, we are, are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Clearly writing to a majority Jewish readership here, thinking particularly of the background of the first covenant, the, the old covenant, but also that would apply to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever their forefathers may have believed. We were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's a ransom. Now, the central theme of atonement in the scripture is substitutionary and penal. And those who try to deny that end up eventually denying the gospel. But those who hold, I believe, rightly to the centrality of the Penal substitutionary atonement is central to the meaning of the cross and central to the preaching of the church. We know that some of the other aspects of Christ's redeeming work, sometimes referred to as ransom or ransom theory, they're not enough to explain the cross. They're not enough to explain the atonement. But as additional explanation, we are told here that we were ransomed in a way that helps us to understand that substitutionary and penal atonement. We're ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our fathers. And we're ransomed not with perishable things. We're not ransomed with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And there it is, a blood atonement. 
like that of a lamb without blemish. Now, we are elect exiles foreknown, that is, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We have been told again what it means that we are elect, but now we are told that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, the times of salvation, for our sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, beautiful symphonic summary of the gospel. But Peter goes on in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That seems to be a jumble of a sentence. It it doesn't go exactly where we would expect it to go. First of all, he says, he's, he's putting it as if it's an active verb in our action, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Again, you take any verse out of context and you can create a not only a rickety theology, you can create a wretched theology. If salvation comes because we purify our souls by our obedience to the truth, that's a very different gospel than what either Peter or Paul preached. But it's not a different way of life for Christians. It's not a different obedience for Christians saved by the blood of the Lamb as we find comprehensively in the New Testament having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Again, former ignorance, the ways of your former ignorance, now obedience to the truth. What does that produce? Oddly enough, a sincere brotherly love. I can't think of a more appropriate text to be in the larger passage we read. As you as a congregation, and we as Christians gather together, will experience the Lord's Supper together. Is there not not everything in this text that points us to the Lord's Supper? Speaking here of the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And and then we are told that, that the picture of the Christian life is purifying souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love even as is demonstrated amongst Christians, sharing communion in that sense together. Since you've been born again, again, what an incredible picture. Right back from John 3 to 1 Peter 1, a picture of the gospel born again of conversion and the necessity of conversion and the miracle of conversion, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. This is is not an attempt at atonement. This is is not a good play for salvation. This is the atonement accomplished and the salvation perfectly promised in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not perishable seed, but imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God, again, testimony to scripture, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Again, pattern in the text. It is written. It, it is written. That's enough. It is written in Scripture. That is enough. The one true and living God has spoken. That is enough. He is there and he is not silent. That is enough. The flesh is like grass. Grass withers. Its flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, the gospel, everything that Peter has said, 
is the good news that was preached to you. Good news. It's actually good news to know that we're elect exiles. And, and it's good in more than one way. It's, it, it's good, most importantly, because of the word elect. That, that, that's why it's good. We're saved. We are, we are in Christ. Before the, the foundation of the world, God foreknew Christ, as we've told here, and, and the atonement that he had planned. This was not God's response. It's not God's plan B. It's God's plan A. But from the foundation of the world, it was, it was God's plan as indicated by his foreknowledge and active foreknowledge and, and, and by his will, his decree that we're elect exiles. And, and you know what that means? It means we're absolutely safe. It's, it's stunning. It means we're absolutely safe. And, and it's good news in a second sense because it's accurate. We, we do need to know where we are. We need to know who we are. We need to know how we hope. That's very helpful. But as elect exiles, we're called to holiness. Just a few observations about this. Just as in thinking about what Peter will say about holiness and the comprehensiveness of this passage, looking back in biblical theology to where he gains his footing and how he begins his argument, all the way down to the fact that this is the word, the good news that was preached to us. First, personal holiness is the visible evidence of being born again. As, as Peter makes clear in the entirety of this letter, the evidence of being born again is personal holiness, and that's a progressive holiness. We believe in punctiliar justification. We believe in progressive sanctification. And in sanctification, we come to understand this is exactly what it means. We become more holy, and so we should as Christians individually and together grow in grace and grow in holiness. Secondly, personal holiness is the tangible manifestation of obedience to Christ. What it means to be obedient to Christ is to grow in holiness. Why? Because as he is holy who saved us, so it is holiness to obey him. Third, personal holiness is the indelible product of the ordinary means of grace. So how is holiness to come about? Well, here we are. We're brought back to where we are this morning through the preaching of the word of God and through the ordinary means of grace, the supper which we are about to observe. We're conformed to the image of Christ and made holy by the word of God living and abiding in us and by the ordinary means of grace. There's no extraordinary, manipulative, emotionally driven, human will-centered way of holiness. It comes only by the ordinary means of grace. Fourth, personal holiness is the undeniable sign to the world of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you. How in the world can you explain that there is a church that loves the gospel and is gathered together on this Lord's Day in this building, in this neighborhood of Louisville, Kentucky in the year 2018? Well, there are proximate explanations that would have to do with you. But as much as I love and respect you and as much as I celebrate you, I believe this is a sign of contradiction to the world. This is an affirmation of the power of the gospel to the world. This is a sign unto this neighborhood that God is not finished with his gospel in this place. So, I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an honor to have been able to open the word of God with you. I want you to know 
how I exult in being here amongst you and how happy I am to see what the Lord is doing here. I just want to exhort you and myself by the words the Holy Spirit gave to Peter to remember that no matter how much we look like we belong here, we are elect exiles. And we're the safest of all people on the planet. And we are called not just by our existence, not even merely by our redeemed existence. We are called to confuse the world and to make the world yearn for Christ by the Christ they see in us, the holiness that by God's grace is in us. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Father, we are so thankful for every single word of Scripture. We thank you for these words today. May your Holy Spirit use your word to conform us to the image of your Son. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.